It's good to see you this morning. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to serve us this morning as we read and teach from God's Word. So if you've got your Bible, or you like to use your phone, or whatever device you use, if you want to make your way to the book of Judges, we're going to pick up our journey through the book of Judges in Judges chapter 13 this morning. And as you're getting settled there, let me read you something else that I had read while I was studying for this series a few months ago, and it stood out to me, and it's kind of a helpful reminder as we begin Judges 13 this morning. I was pointed in the direction of the New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy a number of months ago. It's not a reference book that I am familiar with. Don't think that I read this on my spare time. Uh, but I was pointed to the New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy, which was edited and primarily authored by a collection of professors from UVA, English professors from UVA. And one of the professors, E.D. Hirsch, he begins the book this way. He says, the Bible, the holy book of Judaism and Christianity, it's the most widely known book in the English-speaking world. No one in the English-speaking world can be considered literate without a basic knowledge of the Bible. All educated speakers of American English need to understand what is meant when someone describes a contest as being between David and Goliath, or whether a person who has the wisdom of Solomon is wise or foolish or whether someone who says my cup runneth over means they feel fortunate or unfortunate. Now, I was so struck by his statement there where he says that no one in the English-speaking world can be considered literate without a basic knowledge of the Bible. I began to Google a little bit and see if anyone else shared his sentiment. And I found a couple of surveys, a 2005 survey of secondary English teachers, so high school English teachers in America, 98% of them all suggested that students who are biblically literate have an academic edge over those who are not. And there was another survey of English professors in American universities. It was done in 2006. And part of the write-up of that survey said this, this is a quote, regardless of a person's faith, an educated person needs to know the Bible. It's indispensable and absolutely crucial for a person who wishes to be considered well-educated. And the argument that they were making is that regardless of where you come from, from your, a faith background or tradition, in the English-speaking world, the modern English-speaking world, we use so many phrases, allusions, and images in our conversation with one another that you need to have some kind of working understanding of the Bible because for the hundreds of years that our language has been developing, it has been steeped in association and exposure to the Bible. That things we say to one another come from the Bible whether we know it or not. And I bring all that up because as we enter Judges chapter 13, we are going to begin the story or the cycle in the life of the judges that revolves around a man named Samson. And I know that numerically, the larger percentage of people that will gather on Sunday morning have never actually read Judges chapter 13 and his entire story through Judges chapter 16. But if I were to do the whole word association thing, every single person in here, if I said Samson, could give me something back that they associated with Samson. Because in our conversation, in our daily life, the story of Samson and the name of Samson and the legend even of Samson has been so woven into our cultural communication that it means something to all of us. Everyone is to some degree familiar with this man, Samson. And so we're going to take two weeks, most likely, to make our way through 
the cycle in the life of God's people in which Samson is the deliverer that God raises up. Now, if I can, I want to take a couple of minutes just to situate you in the book of Judges and where Samson comes and and how to best understand it. Because the reality of it is this. Here's what I want you to catch. Samson is going to be the last judge that we're going to meet person to person. There are going to be no other judges named in the book of Judges. If you remember, if you were with us, the book of Judges starts with two introductions or one big introduction from two perspectives. After Samson, the book of Judges is going to end with two conclusions or two epilogues, so to speak. It's going to tell from two different pictures just how far the depravity of God's people had become. But Samson is the last judge. He's the last one that we're actually going to meet. His story takes up four chapters in the book of Judges. Samson starts in chapter 13 where we hear the story of how he came onto the scene. In chapters 14 and 15, there's a series of different exploits in the life of Samson, many of which you're probably familiar with, or you might be familiar with pieces of them. And then in chapter 16, we're going to meet Samson's demise, and we're going to meet Delilah. If you were to take Samson in the whole, and you were to think about his whole story that stretches out over these four chapters, it really can be best summed up as this, a life that started with tremendous promise, and a life that ends with tremendous disappointment. Tremendous expectation and promise. Tremendous disappointment. Not unlike that athlete that we all watch and follow through college who breaks every single record in their sport, who finds himself drafted first amongst all their peers, only to find himself within two years not playing that sport anymore. So much promise, so much expectation, such a great start, so much hope, such disappointment. That's Samson. But this morning, We're just going to concern ourselves with the first part of the story. This morning, we're just going to stay in chapter 13. And so I want to tell you this kind of as an aside as we begin with chapter 13 this morning. The snow threw us off a little bit. If you remember a few weeks ago, we couldn't get together because of the snow. So I had planned on doing Samson in two weeks. We'll start with his birth, and then we'll look at the totality of his life and what happens with Samson. Well, next week is Family Sunday, and we're all going to get together. So I am not most likely going to go through the depravity of Samson on Family Sunday next week. (laughs) All right, so we're going to start Samson this morning. But don't expect next week as we all get together at Veritas for us to pick up Samson's story. So beware. Like we said last week, read ahead. It's not a great story, but we're going to pick it up after that, all right? This morning, we're going to familiarize ourselves and spend our time in chapter 13 because there's something about chapter 13 and the story of how Samson shows up on the scene that I want us to catch that's helpful in understanding the entire cycle, and that's simply this. I want you to see the story of how Samson comes on the scene in chapter 13 is really not about Samson at all. The way the story is actually written The writer of Judges is meaning for our attention and our focus to be on someone other than Samson. It's not really about Samson. Chapter 13, in particular, is a story of God's radical grace for the radical guilt of his people. That's what it's really all about. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read through the story. We're going to read the whole of chapter 13 together. I'm going to make a few comments along the way to maybe round the picture out a little bit to make it a little more alive. And then we're going to come back at the end and we're going to look at how chapter 13 is in particular a picture of God's radical radical grace for the guilt, the radical guilt of his people. And how, if God would so fit and see so fit to do it this morning, you and I might be able to leave here more in awe of who he is for us and how he has continued to love us. 
So chapter 13, let's start in verse 1. We're going to read through it, and I'm going to try to help parts of it come alive a little bit. Chapter 13, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So here's the first part. If you've been with us at all, it might sound familiar. This is the cycle of the depravity of God's people coming back into focus again. They have forgotten God. They're no longer defined and living out of who God has made them to be and who he continues to be for them. They have given themselves over to the worship of false gods and God has given them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, we started with the whole picture of the way that the Bible has woven itself into our cultural language. The whole idea of a Philistine is another image that is in conversational English. Now, you and I probably haven't called too many people in our lives Philistines, but it's not uncommon to come across that term being used in English conversation, and it usually is used to indicate someone who is uh, barbaric and, and unsophisticated. You uncultured Philistine. Well, I want you to understand as you read the story this morning, the Philistines were anything but uncultured. In fact, archaeological digs and, and history of that region has given us more information about the Philistines than many other peoples of this time. And what we've learned about the Philistines is that they were anything but unsophisticated. They were the most sophisticated people on the earth in this day. Their weaponry, their architecture, their culture were far beyond any other civilization at this time. And not only were they tremendously sophisticated, we know from historical record, they were unbelievably depraved. We don't have time to kind of go into the details, but they set the bar for depravity in this particular period. And not only were they depraved, we also know from all the historical record and, and archaeological things that we have found that the Philistine culture was tremendously cruel. The stories and the history of their torture and mutilation of the people that they would possess and oppress, it, it's devastating. So the people that God has given his people into the hands of, these Philistines, they were anything but unsophisticated. The picture here for people who would have heard this read in the synagogue or who would have told the story throughout the centuries are telling the story of a people who in every way, shape, form, or fashion were bigger, smarter, and better than Israel. And God has given them, his people, into their hands for 40 years. Verse two, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. Now there's a lot in two sentences here. There's no wasted words at all. You have the emotional turmoil of a woman and a man who could not have children. And you need to understand, as devastating as infertility is in our day, and, and many of you have friends and family members who are struggling with this, so you know the emotional weight and turmoil that goes on with it. You need to understand what infertility and barrenness meant to people in this particular day and age that we're reading about in Judges 13. You see, back then, there was no social security system and no 401k program. It didn't work that way. Your hope for a future depended primarily upon how many children you had. And in an agrarian society of farmers like Israel was then, the more children you had, in particular, the more sons you had, the more work you could do on the land. The more work you could do on the land, the more harvest you could produce. The more harvest you could produce, the more money you could make. The more money you could make, the more you could take care of yourself. It depended on how many sons you had. And also, when you got old enough to not be able to take care of yourself any longer, 
The number of children you had greatly increased the chance that one of them or all of them in some way would be able to take care of you when you couldn't take care of yourself anymore. So to find yourself in a place of infertility and barrenness, as the Bible speaks about in this particular day, was to find yourself in a place of hopelessness. In fact, one Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, he says this, barrenness in the ancient texts symbolized hopelessness because without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, your family, or for your people. All of that is in two sentences. Verse three, the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you're barren and you have not born children. It's kind of stating the obvious, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So imagine for a moment how that news felt. What thoughts might be running through her mind, what emotions might be stirring in her heart. A special messenger shows up and delivers to this woman very special news about a son that she's to bear, who's to be raised, as we'll see, in a very special way. Look at verse four. Be careful, therefore, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child to be born, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now, this is part of the Samson story you might be familiar with. The angel shows up and tells the woman she's going to bear a son, and this son is going to be consecrated, set apart to the Lord from birth. He is going to take what is known as a Nazarite vow. You find information about the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. The Nazarite vow had three primary parts. You're probably familiar with it. You couldn't cut your hair. You couldn't drink alcohol. You couldn't touch dead bodies. But here are the things that are particular about this when it comes to this story and this boy. If you go back and read Numbers chapter six, what what you'll find is that a Nazarite vow was primarily two things. It was primarily temporary and it was primarily voluntary. People would take a Nazarite vow at a different moment in their life for any number of reasons. It's not apples to apples, but you can think about it this way. You or I may decide to take a particular amount of time in our own life to fast before the Lord for any number of reasons. We might do that. People might take this Nazarite vow, and did you read about in Numbers chapter 6, for any number of reasons, it was temporary, usually 60 to 100 days, and it was voluntary. You decided to do it. Neither is the case in the story of this boy that's going to be born. His is not temporary. It's going to be set apart for his entire life, and it's not voluntary. It's chosen for him. And there's a reason why all this is happening, and you get it in verse 5. He, this boy that is going to be born, He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That is going to be the lens by which we understand the entirety of his story. But we're going to come back to it in just a little bit. I want to get through the whole story so that you can hear it first. Verse 6. After hearing this, the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, verse eight, it's fun. Manoah, the husband, prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again and teach us what we're to do with the child who will be born. Now, read it like a human for a second. Haven't they already been told what to do with the child? Wasn't that information already given? Who was it given to? Mom. 
Just, I'm gonna let you know, as we read this story, there's a whole series of sermons here to be preached on Mother's Day and Father's Day. I'm gonna point out the pieces as we go. But he's already told mom what's to be the manner in which this child is to be raised. But dad, he has his own needs. And I love verse nine. Verse nine has been a, a special verse even this week in reading the story. Manoah, he wants the man of God to come back and tell him what to do. In verse nine, God listened to the voice of Manoah. Centuries of writers, historians, preachers have communicated any manner of intention behind Manoah's request. Why would he not just listen and receive the information from his wife? Why does he want this angel to come back and say again to him what he's already communicated? There's a million sermons in that. We don't actually know why, but what we do know, and let it be a sweet encouragement to you, maybe it was just to encourage me all week, when he did not have the clarity that he wanted, when he had heard something and he wasn't quite sure he understood it completely, he asked, and God listened. It's a sweet verse. God listened, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Again, it's a whole series of sermons from Mother's Day and Father's Day. I love the fact he only deals with mom. Manoah says, can you let him come back, Lord? And the Lord listened, and he came back to mom. So Manoah arose, and he went after his wife, and he came to the man and said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? Now that's the Father's Day sermon right there. I don't know why he didn't say, are you the man that spoke to my wife? I don't know why, but that's the Father's Day sermon. We'll get there. And the angel said, I am. And Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what's his mission? Hadn't that already been communicated? He's just not willing at this point to take it from the one it's been communicated to. That's another Father's Day sermon. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman... Let her be careful. There's your answer. You want more details? You want more clarity for yourself? I've already told her. Let her tell you. Everything I told her to do, do it. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Now Manoah, he doesn't really take this laying down. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I'm not going to eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was with the angel of the Lord. He's still not quite sure who he's dealing with. So verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that it's wonderful? If you just pause right there for a moment, this word wonderful, it's used one other time in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 139, a psalm that's ascribed to David, where David is worshiping, he's marveling, he's extolling the majesty of God who knew him in the womb, who knitted him together in his mother's womb, one who is wonderful. The word wonderful means beyond my comprehension. That's what it means. It means beyond my ability to actually understand and comprehend. Why do you ask my name seeing that it's beyond your ability to understand? 
you still don't know who you're dealing with. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, and he offered, on, offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now, would you love to see that? Well, they did. Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. You bet they did. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. But finally, after all of this, he finally realizes to some degree who he's dealing with. So Manoah says to his wife, we shall surely die for we've seen God. They're on their face. Their face is in the dirt. He's, he's, you can imagine what it sounded like. He's like mumbling down on the ground. We're going to die. I don't know when I can look up, but we've seen the face of the Lord and we're going to die. Now he begins to get it. And when he gets it, he feels like he's seen too much. He's asking for information. He's asking for clarity. He wants more. Now when he understands who it is he's dealing with, he feels like he's had too much. And then another great Mother's Day sermon. Mom becomes the voice of reason. And in the story here in chapter 13, the voice of faith, his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. Verse 24, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Menea Dam between Zorah and Eshtaol. That is the story of how Samson came on the scene. That is the 50,000-foot wide-angled lens view. But now I want to narrow it a bit and trust God in the time that we've got left to stir our hearts in affection for him because ultimately this chapter is not about the story of how Samson came on the scene. That's what's there. The bigger picture and the purpose for which the writer writes this and the way he writes it is that we would see the radical grace of God for the radical guilt of his people. Let me show you. If you've been with us at all through this series and, and you're used to these cycles playing out where God's people sin and God raises up a deliverer, I want you to look back at verse one. You'll see at the beginning of chapter 13 that God's people again did what was evil in his eyes, in his sight, so he gave them over to the hand of the Philistines for 40 years, right? Verse two, we get introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, the ones who are going to conceive and, and bear the son who's going to be the deliverer. But what's missing in the cycle? If you've been here, you just think about the cycle for a minute. God's people sin. God hands them over to judgment. He raises up a deliverer. There was no cry for deliverance. All through the stories we've seen every single time when God gives his people over to oppression and judgment for their sin, they cry out to the Lord and the Lord raises up a deliverer. Not here. There's no cry for deliverance here. There's no cry out to the Lord to step in and intervene. Forty years given over to the hand of the Philistines, no cry from God's people for him to come and to set them free. God's people have become entirely comfortable with life in the Philistine world. Philistine oppression is something that they're comfortable with. In fact, we'll read the story next week. You can read ahead in chapter 15, or we won't read it next week, week after that. Chapter 15, you'll actually see some of Samson's countrymen get angry at him when he begins to provoke the Philistines. When Samson begins to act and begins to provoke the Philistines, they get mad at him. 
Don't mess it up, Samson. God's people have become entirely assimilated into Philistine culture. One writer said it this way, the lullaby of their world had sung God's people to spiritual slumber, spiritual sleep. The lullabies of the Philistine world, of their gods, of their motives, of their opportunities, of their prosperity, has lullabied, has sung God's people into spiritual slumber. And now they find themselves in a place where they don't even recognize their need for deliverance. They don't want to be delivered. They don't recognize the opportunity to know God. And they don't cry out for him to actually deliver them. They're no longer able to distinguish for themselves. The difference between a life lived to the glory of the one who has saved them and committed himself to them and a life lived for the purpose of the people around them. That's where they are. They were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But as we'll see in the rest of Judges, they were doing what seemed right in their own eyes. They could not distinguish anymore. And because of that, they didn't sense their need for deliverance. Now, we've said this over and over and over again in the book of Judges. You're probably tired of me saying it. But lest we try to create too much distance between ourselves and Israel, because as we keep going in the story, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. I don't want to be associated with what's going on here, but lest we create too much distance between ourselves and them, we need to realize we're no different in the end. You and I can become like Israel, like that proverbial frog in the kettle who doesn't realize that the water he's in is getting hotter until it boils him alive. God's people have been lulled into total assimilation into the Philistine culture to a place where they did not even realize what they were doing was evil in the sight of the Lord or sensed his need for deliverance. The same can be said of you and I. The danger of assimilation is the same danger that we see lived out and played out in the life of God's people here. One writer in writing about this particular danger of the church, he says, if you and I, speaking of the church now in the 21st century, if we're merely, if we only merely see ourselves as wayward, then all we really need is direction. If we just see ourselves as sick, then all we need is medicine. If we only see ourselves as weak, then all we need is strength. And this writer says, but the radical grace of God, on the other hand, answers the radical sinfulness and guilt of man. It's not here to answer moral mistakes, lack of zeal, or spiritual lethargy. The radical grace of God is here to deal with the condition that the Bible defines as nothing less than condemned. Children of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins. God's people had found themselves in a place where they no longer sensed even their need for him or their need for deliverance from his hand. Now, what does God do? How does God respond to his people when they no longer even sense their need for him? How does God respond when his people have assimilated entirely into the world around them, so much so that what they're doing and how they're living, they see as right in their own eyes and cannot distinguish between what they're doing and what is right or evil in the Lord's eyes? What does God do and how does he respond to his people when they don't forsake the false gods of the world they live in and have completely assimilated themselves to it and don't sense their need for him at all? How does he respond? That's the beauty of chapter 13. When God's people can't even sense their need for him or cry out to him for deliverance, God begins to deliver them anyway. 
he begins to work their deliverance for them. This is the radical grace of God. Look where he chooses to start. Just look how the story starts. The people as a whole have completely assimilated and since no need for his deliverance. Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, they're part of those people. They're not unique in the story. In fact, the angel has to tell Mrs. Manoah not to eat anything unclean while she's pregnant. God's people weren't supposed to eat anything unclean anyway. He had to tell her that particularly because she was doing it. Mr. and Mrs. Manoah were just as assimilated as everybody else. And when God's people did not sense their need for him or the deliverance by his hand, he begins to step in on their behalf. And he starts with Mr. and Mrs. Manoah. He starts with a barren woman. A woman who in herself had no hope for a future and in herself was powerless to actually change it. One commentator was writing about the situation and he said there was no human energy or ability to serve as a starter. That's where God steps in. This is the radical grace of God. God displays his power precisely when and where you and I can contribute nothing to it. Why? That our eyes that the eyes of our heart might be lifted towards him so that you and I would not live with any illusion or any delusion as to where our hope is really found. This is the radical grace of God. And this, in particular, is what A.W. Tozer loves to refer to as the fact of an all-sovereign, almighty, all-powerful God being always previous. This is the story of chapter 13. God is always previous. Before anything in response from his people, before they either sensed their need for him or responded to his deliverance, God was always previous, always at work, working things together for his glory and the greatest good and the greatest joy of his people. See, chapter 13 is written in such a way intentionally by the writer of the book of Judges to paint a picture of a God who is always at work, a God who is before, a God who is previous a God who was always acting for the glory of his name and the good of his people. This chapter, the introduction of, of Samson coming on the scene, it's ultimately not about Samson at all. It's written to emphasize the work of God in the situation. It's about a God going before his people, providing for them deliverance. Radical grace for radical guilt the majestic, one, true, perfect, and sovereign God condescended in mercy to save those who could not save themselves. Chapter 13 is but an echo of the deliverance and salvation that God would work for his people through his son. The story starts off with such a great promise. Tremendous things happening here. In the book of Judges, this boy, this is going to be the first judge that God sets himself upon, that God raises up before birth. All the other judges God came upon in power at some point in their life, God chooses this boy before he's born. God has him set apart to himself, consecrated separate from the cultural milieu that was, that was lullabying his, his people to sleep and slumber. He's indicating from the very beginning 
This one has to be different. Why? He's going to be the one who is going to begin to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. As we go through the story, you'll see that God is going to use Samson to, to wake up a sleeping Israel. People who have been lullabied into compromise, people who have been lullabied into assimilation and deception, God is going to use Samson to wake them up. People that God had saved, people that God had committed himself to, people that God had made his own, that through them he might bless the nations. People who were meant to be a light to a watching world, who through their assimilation, the light has become dim. God is going to use Samson to wake them up, but here's the thing, he's just going to begin the process. Samson doesn't actually finally lead God's people or deliver God's people from Philistine oppression. David does. Samson just begins it. But Samson and even David himself, they, they serve as pointers for you and I. Just dim echoes to the perfect and final deliverer that God would ultimately send. Here, I love this part of the story. Matthew chapter one, an angel comes to another would-be father delivers a special message to this would-be father that he was to take this woman in marriage and marry a woman that was going to conceive a son. Now, she wasn't infertile or barren. She was a virgin. And when he married her and she gave birth to this son, Matthew chapter one says this, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Chapter 13, you're going to deliver a son. He's going to begin the process of setting his people free from the hand of the Philistines, only pointing to finally what God would do once and for all for his people through his son, save them, deliver them from their sins. You see, in Jesus, God brings his salvation to a people who weren't crying out for deliverance. They weren't crying out in repentance they had no power or particular talents in themselves to save themselves, no particular righteousness of their own. They were a people with no hope and no prospect. Radically guilty. Dead, as Paul would say, in trespasses and sin. God would bring radical grace for radical guilt. And if you'll let me add a third, I don't do it often. I do it every now and then just to hone the skill. God will bring radical grace for radical guilt. And that radical grace is the one place we find real hope. Real hope. You see, if salvation was really about having the right amount of information, if it was finding the right medicine that would cure our soul, if it was in our powerful ability in ourselves to turn over a new leaf, then we don't need deliverance at all. But radical grace reminds us that God's salvation that God's deliverance is not a product of acquiring any of those things. Radical grace comes by receiving the gift of God through faith in his son. And here's the thing I've been reminded of this week as I've been thinking about this story. As I've been thinking about Israel, I've been thinking about their hearts, I've been thinking about how lulled into a slumber spiritually they were that they don't even recognize where they are. They don't even see that what they're doing is evil in the eyes of the Lord. They don't even sense their need for God's deliverance. I was reminded of just how like them I was. And in that moment, God did not wait for me to turn over a new leaf or to read a particular book. God stepped in and saved me. Radical grace for absolutely tremendous guilt. And he didn't wait. He stepped in and saved me. 
And the more I was remembering that and thinking about that this week and thinking about the radical grace of God for, for people even like me who didn't even sense their need for him, the more I was reminded that if he would step in and save me even when I was like that, then even now when I sin and when I fall, he's not gonna let me go. I was reminded again of just how tremendous his grace in his son is towards you and I. And I was reminded of something that has always stirred my heart that one of the Puritans, Richard Sibbs, wrote. Sibbs was telling a story of going on vacation one day to the ocean. And he watched a woman wade out into the waters holding her infant child. And he was marveling how the further she would go out and the stronger the waves get as you go out, the ability of the child to hold on to his mom and not fall out of her arms into the water. And then it hit him. The ability for the child to stay in the mother's arms, the stronger and the bigger the waves got, had nothing to do with how strong the baby was. It had everything to do with how strong the mom was and how tightly she held on to her child. And it hit him. And that's the grace of God at work for, he, for you and I. It hit him. That's the way it is with me. My ability to hold tight to God has nothing to do with my own strength. It has everything to do with how tight God holds on to me. And if he would show his radical grace to me when I, like Israel, was in a place where I didn't even sense my need for him, then my ability to hold on to him has nothing to do with it. His radical grace has a grip on me that will hold me till the end. Chapter 13, it, it's a story of radical grace for radical guilt. And just like this angel told this man and this woman, this child of yours, He's going to be set apart by God for a particular purpose. I want you to understand that when the radical grace of God transforms you and you are born anew, the Bible says, when you become his child, when he has made you a new creation, you're born anew for a purpose as well. I love the way that Peter reminds the church of this in his letter. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, just like what we see going on with Israel in chapter 13, just like it was true of you. Once you were not a people, radically guilty, everything that you were doing seemed right in your own eyes, but evil in the eyes of the Lord but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but because of the radical grace of God through his son, now you have received mercy so that you could live to proclaim the excellencies, the wonderfulness of the one God always previous who has lavished on you his grace for your guilt through his son. See, chapter 13, it's not ultimately about Samson at all. It's about God. It is an echo and a pointer of the way in which God, who is always before, always previous, is going to bring deliverance and grace for the guilty through his son, through Christ. And my prayer for you this morning, and as you go out of this place from here, as you go through it this week, that the radical grace of God shown for those who are radically guilty and dead in sins will reverberate in your mind and in your heart throughout the week and that you, whether you have known this grace before or not, would taste it on your lips as so sweet 
and so precious. So this morning, what we're going to do is I'm going to pray and we're going to have a chance to respond to this. And my prayer for you is that God would make the good news of his grace for you through his son sweet to your lips. And if you've never known it before, that God, by his grace, even if you haven't sensed your need for him, would open up your eyes, the eyes of your heart, Paul would say, to see his glory, his grace in the face of his son this morning, and that his spirit would do a miracle in your heart that my words and nothing I could say or do could ever perform. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then you're going to have a chance to, to respond to God privately, maybe even with your family or friends next to you to pray. But then together as his people, we're going to respond to this grace, remembering the sacrifice of his son in our place for our sins as we receive communion together. And then we're going to sing. We're going to use the mouths he gave us to make much of him. And then he's going to send us out to be his people in this place to proclaim his excellencies to a watching world. So let me pray for us and and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning that your word reminds us, even in a story like this, that whether we feel it or not sometimes, All of us are in desperate need of you. Lord, I ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would wake us up this morning from the slumber that each of us find ourselves in to differing degrees and at differing points, but a slumbering heart that's being lulled to sleep by the songs of the world around us, or that you would wake us up, that we would see again your radical grace for us, that we would again see our need for you. God, for the first time for many in here, wake them up to their need for your forgiveness and deliverance. Lord, lead them to call out to you in repentance and faith, to trust upon your son for their salvation, to know your grace for their guilt. Lord, help us this morning together as your people, as you respond in communion. Lord, for it not to become a ritual or a habit, but Lord, a means of grace whereby you stir our hearts and remind us you're always previous. You were always before us, that you would set your love on us before we were born. Lord, let it be a time of sweet, worship and surrender. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen.